Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine. My sister, and we are back to talk again about one of Netflix's Fear Street films. Uh, the second in the RLSFSCU, I guess that's what we're going to call this one, the R.L. Stein Fear Street Cinematic Universe. I guess that's what we're, we have to, we're really talking about here. We have to give everything a cinematic universe name. It's important yes. to oh. the development of the thing. Uh, I saw a crazy article today. Uh, so David Lowry's The Green Knight just came out yesterday. Yeah. Uh, or Thursday, I guess. And I saw a header. I think it was Salon. I didn't even bother reading the article. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, but it was like one of English, the English language's oldest franchises. They called what? it a franchise. What? A 14th century epic poem uh, about Arthur and his knights. They called a franchise. I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. So, uh, hey, heads up, kids. Uh, the Legends of King Arthur and his knights, it's not a franchise. It's just ancient. It's mythology at this point. Um, oh, it just broke my little heart. I was like, wow. Uh, somebody fire that writer, please. <laughs> referring to i mean what does that mean so we're gonna get a her next movie's gonna be about i don't know percival and um you know it's they're gonna call it ah oh, the second in the epic arthurian franchise oh jesus anyway uh so but yeah everything's a franchise these days uh including this film fear street part two 1978 the flashback with the backstory that you were desperate for after watching Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Or at least I was. Were you? I, uh, <laughs> I just... Um, um, these movies, you know? Uh, there's something. I did not have a great time. Well, you know, this is... I said this before we started recording. I'm going to say it again because it's true. Um... This is a rare trilogy of films where the middle act may be the better of the three. I don't know how I feel about that. It's it's certainly uncommon to have the middle act of a of a film series feel like the most confident and capable. Um but I I kind of understand it because this film has the most Focus. This film has a defined beginning and ending, right? The story is told and completed in the context of this, you know, hour and 50 minutes or whatever. Whereas the book ends, 1994, and, and then the next film we'll talk about, 1666, are really just add-ons to, you know, the larger story that they're trying to tell. And I think that that makes this film a bit more narratively satisfying. Maybe not enough to to save it in terms of, you know, the quality of the entire series or anything. Yeah, but, I would not call this um, satisfying in any traditional sense of the word. Well, no. But maybe I, I whatever satisfaction it can offer. Perhaps. Right. I mean, in a film that is a, a designed trilogy, right? It was put together, created you know everything about this film was they knew what this was going to be from the start this is really just one big movie chopped up into multiple sections to tell 
these various stories and more importantly, play in these horror sandboxes that they want to, you know, quote unquote, love letter to. Uh, I cannot tell you how many reviews I read that use the phrase love letter, love letter to 80s slasher horror. And, you know, (laughs) do we have enough love letters? Especially to 80s slasher horror. Like we get one of those pretty, you know, every couple of months. To anything from the 80s at this point. You know, it feels like a a decade that has just been pumped for all of its nostalgia until it's it's just a husk. (laughs) I mean, is there anything that we have not franchised or monetized or or made into some material good from the 1980s? Um, I haven't seen enough color wave shirts come back yet. I need those. Which I guess that's even more of a 90s thing. But it was starting. They were cool. I want my shirt to change color when I get hot. So people know that I'm hot. I had a Hot Wheels truck like that. Do you remember the Hot Wheels (laughs) color change truck? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and then I had, there were tons of toys that you could like dip into water. That was a thing. I think I actually have an old, uh, I think it's a mask toy. I've got it on my shelf next to me here. Look how much we don't want to talk about this movie. (laughs) I know. Let's let's talk about 80s toys. Um, but I've got a mask toy that you put water in and then you dunk the guy in it and the guy like changes his, his goes translucent or something. So, I mean, yeah, that was like a big thing. Oh, look at how, look at this play feature. It's so amazing. And all right. So let's, uh, let's, uh, this let's particular movie, this, this one, you know, speaking on decades, this movie is going for that, that late, late seventies vibe mm-hmm. that um yes. that camp crystal lake vibe um, yeah yeah the visual language being called upon in this film if it's not obvious from all of the marketing is the original friday the 13th yeah. like that is what they are going for it's what they want um Which they I, get there for the most part i don't I mean, really not- understand the appeal of of that particular film I just really don't. I, I don't. It's not because I hate it. I just don't think that it has this lasting appeal. I, for me, it definitely does not. I am not a huge Friday the Thirteenth fan. It's not one of my go-to horror franchises. Uh, Maybe I know it's, it's just that it's ubiquitous. Like I've just seen it so much. Right. I, I think that's really what we're hitting here. Is that they picked it. Because when people think of 80s slasher horror, if, if you have any experience with actual 80s slasher horror and not the many, 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 many films to come along and ape it in its, you know, since its inception, Friday the 13th and Jason are, are probably going to be, you know, at the top of that list. Even though I, I find it incredibly ironic that that has sort of replaced Halloween, which, you know, if you go read anything from Sean Cunningham, the guy who created friday the 13th all he was trying to do was was recreate the magic of halloween because halloween had been this incredible success and he's very open about it. he's like no we saw this that was good proof again we wanted john we wanted carpenter to do that again. is the king of movies john carpenter wins um, but i mean he basically said we wanted to do halloween but with with boobs Right. Like that's, that was it. But like more <laughs> boobs, more, more of the boobs because he came from, you know, that more exploitation side of, of horror and, and other films. But so I, I really find it funny that Friday the 13th, which in and of itself was an, an obvious attempt to ape a different film is now kind of like the, the blueprint 
right? Although this film does have its references to, to Halloween as well. This this is a Friday the 13th film. It takes place at a summer camp. The killer wears a mask and wields an axe. Like it's it's just very obviously, you know, that's that's what they're trying to do. And, and that's it's, fine. Yeah, and right? it's, it's unapologetic. This is not the first that, one to it. In yeah, that regard. It's not trying to be anything other than what it is. And maybe that's, I've really thought about it since we recorded 1994. I know we had a little break in there because of you know, various things going on, but you know, since 1994, I've really tried to think, I was like, what is the appeal of these? Cause I do find these movies somewhat appealing. And I think that that, you know, that love letter component, if we want to be honest, right. Cause these are love letters, they're love letters. Um, and I don't think it's that, but I think it's more just the unabashed attitude, just the, Hey, yeah, we know. Like we can't, we kind of know, like we're not pretending here that we're doing anything other than just completely ripping off these other really cool movies that people love and, and they obviously love. And and to a certain extent, I appreciate that honesty. They know what they are and they're okay with it. Uh, and this one might be the most okay with what it is. And that's fine. Like I said, I kind of enjoy it. Um, so the, the setup for 78 uh, takes place in the, the previous film in 94, although they do recap it in case somehow you missed it and just came out on this one, uh, which I did find funny about all of these, that they basically sort of make sure that, I guess if you're just like popping around Netflix and it's, you miss the part where it said part well, I, three. I know exactly what's happening. It's, it's this hybridization of television and film. Right. Finally, it's taken place and it took streaming platforms for it to happen. And yes, I hate it. I hate it very much. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, if Marvel kicked it off, streaming services have aped it, and now here we are. Because, um, again, this is either you can see this is one big long movie or just three parts of a, you know, miniseries TV show. Right? Yeah, this it's is, like a, a rebirth of a miniseries. Right. This is the, the, <laughs> the storm of the century 90s miniseries, uh, Insomnia, right? All those Stephen King like adaptations in the nineties. That's what this is. You know, they were six hours. Uh, it had Steven Weber Ugh. doing his best Jack Nicholson impersonation. Ugh. And, and, and you know, that one was down. really accurate. That's what I hate. It was so book yes, accurate, it's, but it it's proves better adaptation. It's the problem. The it reveals the problem with adapting a book into a movie. It's that sometimes what's cool in a book. It's not cool in a movie. <laughs> Hold on. So are you telling me, that a bunch of topiary animals moving around in the yard is not the most <sighs> terrifying thing that you've ever seen on film. Not the most. <laughs> I I refuse to believe that, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, those I, I have a lot of affection for those because really, you know, for me, that was those miniseries were kind of my first introduction, not only to Stephen King, but to just horror in general. Like we had a lot of horror in our house, but it wasn't, it's not like it was like the first thing that, that like our parents popped on when we were watching a movie. Like if, if like our dad was like watching a horror movie, it was totally fine. If we sat down and watched two, like they wouldn't say anything, but it wasn't like my dad was like, Hey dude, we're going to watch Friday the 13th part four tonight. Like, hell yeah. No, like our household was just, we will be watching movies. You can watch them with us if you want. And if not, you've got a TV in your own damn room. (laughs) Go away. (laughs) Go, go take care of it. Um, and so it was, you know, 
but it was definitely around really. I mean, I guess, you know, for me, my first like significant memory of watching a horror film actually was at a friend's house. Um, I didn't do a ton of sleepovers. It wasn't really just something that the friend group that I had did a lot, but uh, I did go over to one guy's house and he was, his family was pretty well to do. And, and he like basically had the entire upstairs of their house to himself. He was an only child. He might have had like a younger sister, but he was really young, way younger than him. And, um, we did a sleepover and we of course didn't sleep, right? We just stayed up and played video games, did stuff all night. But around like 11 o'clock, 1130, we kind of quit playing video games and he had this like upper, upper platform, uh, that bridged it, it like went out over their foyer and like bridged the two sides of the, the second floor and he's like oh let's just sleep out here tonight and he had like a little tv set up out there and all the stuff and so we turned that on and i don't remember if it was you know vhs probably was but it could have just been on tv as well because he had cable of course and we watched i, I want to say it was friday the 13th part two um and i was completely disinterested right like even then and i would have been maybe 10 or 11 at this point i was bored out of my mind i was like what is this um it didn't make any sense you knew when the killer was coming because of the soundtrack like even as a 10 year old i was like okay you know boobs like that was really the yeah. only, i mean because you know i'm with a bunch of other 10 year olds so like they're all like Ooh. um but that was like the entire appeal and then after that they showed evil dead 2 and that movie blew my effing mind. I loved every minute of it. It terrified me. Like I probably had nightmares for weeks, but I loved it. Like, and and there are still moments from that viewing of Evil Dead Two that are like burned into my brain. Um, and and so maybe that that's why movies that are based on Friday the Thirteenth just don't do much for me because my initial taste of that universe was like immediately contrasted is- with a better movie. <laughs> yeah. That was the thing is like, I got backed up with evil dead too. And I forgot all about Friday the 13th. Didn't care. And so again, I, I respect them. I've seen the vast majority of them now and I understand what they're doing. And, and I think there is certainly some stuff to be mined in those movies. Uh, that's fun. But it's just not a genre. It's not a series that's worked super well for me. Um, I was more of a, I mean, it, I don't really see it as a conflict, but I was definitely more of a Freddy kid. Like I, I just watched more Nightmare on Elm Street stuff um, and, and had more interaction with that. When I, I was up. watched any horror movie, all horror movies. I watched so many horror movies. I don't actually remember what my first earliest memory with them was. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of saturated by it because my favorite thing to do when I was a kid was wander the horror movie section of the rental store that we frequented as a family and pick out covers that if dad would happen to walk down that aisle, I would be like, you should get this one because it looks <laughs> scary. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one I think that's can. how I convinced him to rent Night Shift. And I'm really sorry, dad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Night Shift was... <laughs> Mm, that a cool cover though. <laughs> it did. It had a great cover. Yeah, I remember. And that was another thing when I when I, you know, when we would go to the, the store, I eventually realized which cuz the when I watched Evil Dead 2, I didn't know what it was. They they hadn't I, we like came in at a weird time or something. I didn't see the title. 
I just knew it was like, you know, dude in a house who loses his hand. Like that was what stuck in my brain. And then eventually when we were going through the rental store later, I found, I found the cover just, it was the original like skull cover with the eyes in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. And I picked it up and on the back cover was, you know, a shot of Bruce Campbell in the, the right costume. And I was like, Oh, this is that movie. Right. And so that's where that connection got made. So yeah, that rental store was a nice open window to all kinds of interest. Shout out to RJ Ely in Murfreesboro, Illinois. We love you, RJ. <laughs> Thank you for all the memories. Thank you for your service. Um, but so, you know, Fear Street Part 2 is is attempting to both capitalize upon and in many ways cannibalize and 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 consume and regurgitate the <laughs> regurgitate being the a keyword. <laughs> The Friday the 13th series, uh, but with, you know, all of the modern to do's, right? Like we have a, a you know, sort of large and varied cast. Um, we have uh, some intrigue. We've got you know, modern filmmaking techniques. And that's a lot of what I was about work, to say. Lots of you know? lots of uh, trends. I like to think of them as trends more than techniques. Um, yeah, I, mean, this, I think that's this movie true. feels very trendy. Yeah, I th I think as the series goes on, the the trends in not just horror, but you know, again, I don't know why these movies are rated R because they seem like they're designed from the ground up for teenagers. Like yeah. until until somebody gets their their fucking head chopped off, this is to something that could be on the fair, CW. To be fair, right? the ratings don't really matter if it's on. Very true. Yes. And it allows them to go for that extra violence and extra gore and they know teenagers will watch it. That's true. How many how many parents are truly capitalizing upon and utilizing the parental lockout features of Netflix? And I mean and the answer is zero. You know, I was a young person. I I have been in that situation where you've been barred from doing the things you want to do. You just find a way around it. So if you don't get into a movie theater. Well, look, now they have the movies on Netflix, so you don't have to worry about it. And maybe that was part of why, you know, WB, you know, pumped and dumped these things is because they realized that they needed to have an R rating to work at all. But yet if they went into a theater with an R rating, who's going to go see it? Right. Cause again, like, you know, no adult horror would do nerds. This. <laughs> no. Um, and, and if you, if you're an adult that shows up at a theater with your, 12 year old to watch an r-rated horror movie you know what does that say only god can judge me <laughs> but i mean they did it for it they definitely did it for it and it part two mm -hmm. um so I, I could see where you know some studio bean counter thought that this might be a good idea and it, and it, obviously it was to a certain extent because it certainly made it splash on netflix uh, no one is talking about it now like it's basically disappeared from all media, which is probably fitting, but it made it splash, right? It got its, it's, you know, multi-week cycle. People were into it. The viewership numbers I'm sure were off the charts. So maybe Netflix got all of the, the things that its algorithm demands for success. Um, so let's get into the deep dive and, uh, you know, get going on, on fear street part two. But, um, I think, you know, based on our, our discussion, I think it's fair to say that we both liked this one better than the last. Um, I, I think it works a bit better, not a ton, 
but I think it's again, it's got a slightly more focused story to tell. I, and I think that helps kind of keep the engine running. I feel like for me, the biggest improvement was this had likable actors. Uh, yes, yeah, and and not incredibly likable, not not no. very likable, just likable. <laughs> right, and we do get the benefit too that this is a prequel. Right. Like this is telling a story about characters that we do have some connection to already. So we're getting that that all too important and juicy backstory. Um, that uh, apparently is, is the, the driving force of these movies, because the of the six hours we spend a good three and a half of that hours in flashback mode, uh, which is an interesting choice. Uh, but we're going to get into it. So if you have yet not yet watched Fear Street Part Two, 1978. Uh, definitely go check it out on Netflix. It's it's worth watching once, perhaps um, jumping around on if you get bored, perhaps. Uh, but we will uh, now begin our sort of deep discussion into it. Uh, so rather than just sort of launching into our you know scene by scene breakdown, I don't know if we need to necessarily do scene by scene for this movie. Um, what were your sort of biggest complaints coming out? of part two because uh, I had a few, but I'm, I'm very curious kind of where you fell once it was all wrapped up for this particular installment. How did all these teenagers know exactly what to do all the time? How? <laughs> um, Why do they know everything? Yeah. You know, they when know I was 17, I didn't know anything. Know. <laughs> I didn't know where the hell I was. I didn't know what anybody was talking about, but these kids just have like Rube Goldberg machine blueprints just stored up in their brains. I don't understand. I don't get it. They're all, um, they're all latchkey kids who have been forced to fend for themselves for years and they've got AOL now and all of their answers are coming from AOL. Terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, this, these movies in general, and this, this trend will continue into the final one. These kids all know what they need to do when they need to do it. And Sometimes the film will stop and sort of give some kind of justification for why they know it or how they know it. Most of the time, they're just going to run right the hell through it. Um, and that's okay because this movie, I think 1994 did it as well, but it was kind of cute. But this movie solidifies that the basic approach to assembling the scenes in this, this trilogy is. You have one of three types. You have a scene where someone is being killed. You have a scene where a conversation is occurring, where characters are talking about their relationships. And then you have scenes where they're delivering direct exposition about the, the witch and the, the history of Shadyside and Sunny Vale or Sunnyside, whatever it is. Um, those are the only three types of scenes that exist in this film, uh, in all of these films, really. Um, and they can all be categorized that way. There might be a one-off where there's just a joke, right, or something. But like the vast majority of the scenes that were, were created for these movies, it's doing one of those three things. Um, and you know that's fine. Again, that's kind of what I would expect to see in a Fault in Our Stars style YA film, which is why I think these feel like such YA films, is because their runtime is is just ludicrously split between, oh my God, my boyfriend is such a jerk. I can't handle it. 
and then someone getting their head split open with an axe. And to be fair, and then this that's did you what guys it's hear about on. Sarah Fear? You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, it didn't try to improve franchise. the material in its translation to film because you know a, a book you kind of meander through a book when you read it. You're not really you're not really locked into like this this track where you you know things need to happen in a certain amount of time because like you know, we we need to be eating dinner by now um <laughs> right in a book you know you take it a chapter at a time it's a very long journey most of the time so in a movie you do need to upgrade some of those things some of those elements that might work in a book you know some of those small dramatic things you have to change them so that they they work on the big screen and this just didn't even try yeah, it's and maybe that's where this disconnect in my head is coming from is that this is a YA franchise that they've aged up obviously to appeal to the people that actually read the books back when they came out, people our age. But yet they didn't actually age up the content of the material. Yeah, they didn't age up the maturity of the of the people involved. They didn't really change the I don't know the visual language of any of it, you know, just from being from the perspective of young people to maybe something a bit more adult so that, you know, we can connect to it. It's just, it was really hard for me to connect with anybody. Yeah. I mean, again, this film, although there are a couple of adult characters, really this summer camp, the way that it's presented to us is it's populated by nothing, but you know, sort of juniors and seniors in high school and then like 11 year old and 12 year old kids. The the only other adult is the nurse and she's dispensed with at the beginning of the film and there's just no one else around. (laughs) So it's another movie that seemingly by intent and, and by design is nothing but the kids, right? There's no grownups in this. They, they've got to fend for themselves. Which you know can you know serve as a tension ratcheter if that's what you're it's looking for. It's just not realistic in some cases. It's it's not. There and are more adults at a summer camp. I've been to camps before. They've got they're yes. crawling with adults. Yes. Um, again, I guess it, it was 1978, so there might not have been as much you know sort of legal liabilities at, at play. But yeah, like there's there's a lot of, and and then when when crap eventually hits the fan. Again, there's just no adults anywhere to be found. And it's just all these teenagers trying to corral a bunch of 10-year-olds to safety. And it's it's equal parts terrifying and hilarious because it would just never happen in a million years. Uh, but hey, whatever. It's it's a movie. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of in the same place with this. I I found the film enjoyable enough to watch. Um, I think I think it's shot a bit better. I think being out in the open instead of sort of inside of houses and school hallways and things like that, I think benefit this. It gives it a bit of room to breathe and and some space to quite literally run, which I I thought was kind of engaging. Uh, In general, I think visually just, you know, the summer camp visuals are a little bit more exciting than, you know, the, the sort of bland school hallways of, you know, whatever school in Vancouver they shot this thing in that we've seen in 35 other movies kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I found myself sort of more engaged by it. It's also being shot 
with a lot of, you know, sort of hazy lenses and, you know, they're doing a little bit to kind of recreate the look and feel of 1970s films. Everything's very warm. Um, it's, it's okay. Like it's, it's really you know, pretty nicely done for the most part. And I found myself more sort of visually excited than I definitely was in 1994. I'm not a huge fan of just garish neon lighting, which is what 1994 is kind of obsessed with. It's just that sort of like, here's a harsh purple backed up against a harsh green. And, you know, that kind of stuff is fine and it looks good and it's probably period appropriate because there was a lot of that shitty lighting in the 1990s. But um, I, I liked the way this looked better. It had a better feel for me. And as you said, um, and I guess we can talk about the acting a little bit. Uh, I think we have a much stronger lead in Sadie Sink. And honestly, I was sad to see her go um, from the, the last film, which, uh, you know, a bit of a detriment. I, I understand why, but I, I think she does have a tremendous, not a tremendous, but she has a, a good level of charisma. And I think she does a very good job of carrying the vast majority of this film on her back, even though for some reason they tried to have a fake out. Cause like the character they meet at the end of 1994 is just called C Berman, like the letter C, right? There was so, never any question in my mind that that was not the I same know. person. So all of that was kind of lost on me. Um, Such a weird choice. I was pretty sure Britta was going to be her all along, you know? Yeah. Because I thought I, that was obvious. I Yeah. When, when they did the reveal at the end of the movie, I was like, wait, was I supposed to think that the sister was C. Berman? What? Because um, her sister's name is what? Cindy? And then everybody calls her Siggy or, or Ziggy. Ziggy. I, is Ziggy. Okay. Um, and everybody calls her that. So like, I guess the film was trying to like do some kind of weird fake out thing. And I was like, wait, what? So you're, you're going to tell me that like nondescript girl number three is the one who's going to be the character that continues on. Of course not. Of course not. It's going to be the stranger things girl. It has to be the stranger things girl. Um, so yeah, that was very odd. Uh, that that they wanted to have some kind of reveal there. I, I guess it was just so there would be the tension that this main character that we like from Stranger Things might die. I guess that's what they were going for. Um, but it it just totally doesn't work. No. Like, never for a moment was I like, oh, it's this other girl that's going to live. No, of course not. Um so we have, you know, Sadie Sink at the center of this is Ziggy, who another sort of aspect of the story that I really didn't care for was the the relationship between the two sisters. It's established as highly contentious right from the start, like they just are at each other's throats. And it's not that that it can't be the case, right? Obviously, there are a lot of strained. The reason behind it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there. It's obviously that it's obvious that their their mother is bad, right? She's a bad person. She's a bad mom, and so as a result, the way that the screenwriter chose to handle it was to make the sisters angry at each other. And I'm like, in the history of the universe, has there ever been a sibling pair that, when the parent is the one who is obviously like problematic, that can, they would turn on each other? It I mean, can I, happen if happen. there's a good yeah. reason. 
but just this whole shady side rivalry just really it really doesn't land throughout the entire series um if that was going to be such a a, a centerpiece they probably should have spent more time showing us shady side um and why it is so terrible why it's cursed why it's a bad place to live why no mm-hmm. one ever makes it out of shady side it really doesn't seem yeah. that bad this it, this rivalry feels more like Pawnee versus eagleton <laughs> and i just i have a sure. hard time taking any of the conflicts surrounding it seriously when i'm thinking of Pawnee versus eagleton right uh you know basically what we have is another the sister is a shady cider. They, well, they both are obviously, but she like, uh, Sam in the first film has made the decision to hook up with, you know, Sonny Valers and she's trying to like change her image and turn it around because she wants to get out of shady side. And so she's gone from being like a cool kid to being like a prep nerd, which again, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If the sister has beef with her because she's not being herself or whatever, I get that, I suppose. But just the level of vitriol that these two girls level at each other immediately, I, I just didn't feel like it was earned. And then the movie doesn't really ever pay it off other than to have them reconcile. It, right it doesn't the, pay the, off the with a lot of moment. things. And, and that's kind of what I mean with the, showing us more of shady side, I guess the conflict would make sense if we just saw more of it. Yeah. Cause this movie also, of course, I mean, all of these films are engineered to delve into the story of Sarah fear, the witch that cursed the town and, and now has, you know, created all these problems for, um, yeah, the movie Jesus. spends an inordinate amount of time talking about Seraphir when it's not a complicated story. We got it the first time, and we really don't need much more no, exposition no, 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 no. and time spent no, on Seraphir. No no no. no, 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 no. You don't understand, man. Witches, they used to burn them, right? Like, you, you, don't, know, you don't get it. Because it's you see, complicated. it's witchcraft. I mean, they burned them at the stake for being witches. So bad. Now, granted, uh, I, I kind of called in on our first episode and, and was was, you know, ultimately proven correct that there is a twist, right? The witch is not maybe as witchy as we once thought, um, which was like totally obvious. And there's tons of stuff in the movie to communicate that. So I don't think again, I don't know if they ever really intended it to be like a twist, but they do spend an inordinate amount of time explaining how everything happened. So this film focuses on the experiences of C. Berman at the Nightwing, Nightwing, yeah, Camp Nightwing, uh, uh, you know, sort of kids camp in in the you know summer of 1978. It's a camp that both Shady Siders and Sunny Valers go to, which again makes no sense. That you know if they hate each other that much. Why would you put them all at a summer camp together? And um, they they go to the summer camp and it's the site of the last sort of serial killer you know, breakout, um, which, again, they have to do a little bit. And I, I do applaud them for kind of keeping names and stuff on the down low so that, you know, you at least have a few moments before you realize who the killer is going to be. 
and and where this is going to go. They, they at least attempted to sort of keep that on the tell low. Attempted. It doesn't really work. Um, but, you know, I don't think these movies are are really interested in being subtle or careful. Um, and that's fine. You know, not every horror movie needs to have like layers to it. I, I think it certainly wouldn't hurt. I mean, certainly might help. It, but mm. this this movie's it's, just, it's playing a, a pretty standard tune, right? This isn't jazz. This is a cover band and they're hitting all the right notes, right? But they're not quite nailing the song. Like the beat's just a bit off and the guy playing lead guitar, you can't quite get that that solo at the end of, uh, you know, one by Metallica. He just can't quite nail it. Mm-hmm. It sounds okay. And you're kind of buzzed anyway. So whatever. Um, it's, it's really that, right? It's, it's not Weird Al's cover band, which is just perfect, you know, down to the note. It's, it's that cover band you see, you know, out at the lake on a Thursday. <laughs> like it's that one. And, and it gets the job done. And this movie is certainly getting the job done. If you want to see a movie where people get murdered in horrific ways and little kids run screaming through the night, this has got all you want, right? In spades. Um, but if if you want something that you're going to hang on to, like my question is this. There are people who still watch Friday the 13th routinely, religiously, regularly because those films had an impact on them. They care about them. 30, 40 years down the road, still doing that. Is anybody going to watch this movie in 30 years? No. Like, I, I, I don't really think so. Because they'll just watch the other one. They'll watch the one that it, it's aping and emulating. And that, as I watched these movies, I realized more and more that maybe that was what my disconnect with them was. It was like, I don't know of a scenario or a situation where I feel like I'm going to want to watch this again. And not that... You have to. I mean, there are tons of people who, you know, and I guess, you know, our dad would fit into this category. You, you only watch movies once. You watch it once, you experience it, you move on. Watching it again, maybe reserved for like 20 or 30 movies that are just really good, you know. And and I guess most people are probably like that. But myself, I, I really like to go back and I revisit films a lot. Me right? too. As much as time allows, at least. Um, and not just my favorites, right? Movies that I found problematic or movies that I watched and I didn't really kind of get or latch onto. I'll sometimes come back and revisit that film and say, Hey, was there something I missed? Or is there something else here that I can get out of this? Um, cause it obviously lodged in my brain for some reason, but I, this is like a fart in the wind, man. Like I, I smelled it when it was in my vicinity, but it's gone. Well, there's right? just Even nothing like it's, about it's, this movie that's memorable. Yeah. And I guess that's really it. Like, again, there are a couple of kills. We had the, the bread slicer kill in the first one. I'll remember that. That's pretty good. Um, this one, it gets a little bit harder. I guess there's that one girl who gets kind of chopped in half with an axe. That's pretty good. And then the guy I mentioned after, I think we were off recording last time. The the little, the little kid, kid with glasses. That was horrible. <laughs> oh my I didn't want to see that. I mean. Oh, my God. You know, it's one of those things where. You can show something in a movie. Sure. I get it. It's mm-hmm. a movie. But what did that do? What was the point of that? It that was mean. Attention. I didn't even yeah, know who that, that kid was. And we didn't dead. even know who he was. I mean, they introduced him to be like the cute nerd. And 
just murdered him. I mean, a, a piece of me makes almost makes you think that they were like, oh, man, what if somebody, you know, murdered Steve Urkel in the last episode of Family Matters? Ah, it's it's the just, same it's basic effect. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, in that regard, you know, that's I guess that's kind of throwbacky to make sure that the nerds always you know, get it because nerds ah, let's pound some nerds right um but i i don't know i feel like that's not very modern and these movies are trying to be both contemporary and throwback and i just don't i don't know if that works i don't know if it's able to do that successfully yeah i mean in some ways it almost feels like you know, I mean, like the HBO formula at this point is well known, right? We need three instances of boobs, you know, two butts, uh, one vagina or one penis you pick. Um, like every episode has like its markers, right? And and really, as you go on watching a show like Game of Thrones, like these numbers become super obvious. Like, okay, we've got to hit this, 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 and this target to satisfy, you know, what HBO standards for content. And And this movie feels like it's been similarly arranged right to say okay we need you know in the last you know 40 minutes we need seven kills you know somebody went through and watched the major you know horror slasher films with a, a little thumb counter and was clicking off every time somebody got murdered and then recorded that number in a spreadsheet or in a google doc and said oh at the end of you know friday the 13th part four there's you know seven kills in 15 minutes so we want to try it you know like these movies feel like somebody did that, right? Not that they necessarily wrote a story that was satisfying and compelling and interesting, you know, cause they're off the RL Stein, you know, sort of track at this point, they've got the basic story, but as far as what they're executing on the individual story level for these movies, they're in their own world. So they can do whatever they want. And, and really what I think we're seeing is just somebody planning these kinds of things, not without Maybe love. Magic. <laughs> you know not without love like that's the thing i think that does if, if anything will keep these movies in my mind and somewhat endeared to me at, at all in the future it's that these things are very obviously being created with love right it's not the callous cash grab at least from the creative side it's not the callous cash grab of this this shit's popular make another one of those Right. It's not it's not cosmic sin. It's not whatever shit Bruce Willis is releasing this month. Right. It's it, it's crafted by people who care about the craft of the thing. And that's good. Right. That's that's good. Uh, is it. Creating a new classic. No. But, you know, if you're into this kind of thing you'll be into this kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's the basic scenario here. Um, all right. So this, this movie opens with C Berman. So they chose to cast Jillian Jacobs in this role. And I don't hate that choice. I like Jillian Jacobs. I love Britta. Um, it's like nice to, to see her. Britta as a, as a, you know, shut in. That's always good. Um, but what did you think about her situation? So, we know that C. Berman is the survivor of Camp Nightwing. We're apparently going to experience some kind of twist about who exactly she is, but she's a survivor. And so she uh, is being written here to have, again, a little bit of a modern lens thrown on this, that she has uh, PTSD and potentially agoraphobia. 
and she is sort of turned into this shut-in inside her own home. Um, so they do a lot, much like with the first walkthrough of Josh and uh, his sister's house, to sort of establish visually the life that she's leading. And I, I was gonna kind of interested in your read on that, because she's got clocks everywhere that are marked with various uh, times and considerations. And then lots of magazines and books. Movies, very specific movies. movies. Yeah, we get a lot of, you know, again, we're establishing character by the media they consume. Everything is very neatly arranged. She kind of has things ordered a certain way and she does things in a... It was, the opening was the best part of the movie. Um, Yeah, I I really love the flashlights. Uh, I think my favorite shot in this entire series is that flashlight shining through the mail slot. So good. Yeah. Love it. I um, really wish that she had just been the star of the first movie. And then the second movie would be her backstory. And then the third movie would be her revenge. You know, I have no idea what the script development phase of this looked like, but there's a piece of me that wants desperately to believe that that was the original structure. This opening is so detailed. It's so detailed and we don't find out what any of it means. Yeah, no, I mean, no time is is spent on C. Berman in her current state. So her, her 1994 version we don't get any of that. So this character that is given to Jillian Jacobs, who is a wonderful actor, really doesn't get to breathe and expand and grow because it seems like the filmmakers have decided that if we understand this singular event from her past, then that's all we need to know to understand this woman today, which happens all the time in movies. And I can't stand it. Well, and, and they even had some falling action at the end of this this movie that they could have used. They could have spent it on, you know, more development of this character. And instead we got more of the dumb kids from the first movie. <laughs> Dina and Josh. Ah. Um, or Dina and Sam, right? So, yes, this very much becomes about Dina and, and Sam. So Sam is possessed. Um, the The... Shady side curse has fallen upon her. Um, so she was initially a victim that Sarah Fear was attempting to, you know, communicate with, come after. We don't really know. Again, the rules of these movies are very loose. Although they try to clean them up a, a little bit in the last one. But uh, in essence, she's, you know, bad and wants to murder everyone. But Dina and Josh are insistent that C. Berman has some piece of information since she was a survivor on how they can get out of this, right? A way that they can escape this situation. Um, so our, our exposition begins. They've got uh, a journal where she's kind of going through and she's going to, you know, share about Camp Nightly. And... I wanted to stay in the 1994 version of this more. I was kind of cheesed that, you know, we're nine minutes into a movie. This is six hours. This is a six hour thing. We're only nine minutes into the second film. And then we are immediately thrust back into 1978. 
without any real time to you know, develop who these people are. And again, you're right. We do get a little bit of falling action at the end of this movie as the frame story reasserts itself. Um, and, and a little bit with her in the next film, but it's just, it doesn't seem substantial enough. And unfortunately it seems like they were just mostly obsessed with showing that she's, her life isn't really not good. Um, and that unfortunately, you know, these events have marred her life, but the, they just seem obsessed with building this idea because like the last line before they cut, they cut is like a week later, my sister was dead. And then of course that becomes the, the sort of big question, right? Like, Oh, her sister's dead. How does her sister die? Wouldn't it, Let us wouldn't it have just been cool if, I don't know, we didn't have those dumb little kids in the movie. <laughs> and maybe like it just started with her, her miserable life and, all of these weird ticks that she's developed. And maybe we get to see why she has them. What, what made her with the clocks, especially. I'm just so curious. We could right. just spend. It seems like she's timing things out around town almost like yeah. she's keeping track of when things happen or when she needs to do things to encourage her to like accomplish a, an outside task. But again, it's all backgrounded. We don't really get to see her life and operation. I'm completely in agreement on that point. I think it would have been much more interesting as an adult consumer of horror, right? Which again, these movies are not necessarily made for us, but as an adult consumer with uh, of horror, I think it would have been much more interesting to open with C. Berman. Fine. If you want to still have the kids in it, let's have the kids in it too. And have the first movie be about their inevitable, you know, sort of running into each other and how their lives are going to you know, connect. But then once C. Berman's in there, she becomes the anchor point for all of the information that these kids need to survive because of previous experience or research she's done on her own. Like that just works much better. And it gets around the obvious problems that they have with all these kids knowing fucking everything about this shit. <laughs> you know, even though it, ostensibly that would not necessarily be something that they would all just kind of have in their back pockets. So the film opens, well, once we make the transition back to 78, which is a nice one. They've got a little picture, you know, sort of back to the future style of the, the two girls standing in front of the sign and they zoom in and we're you know, back in 78. Uh, Sadie Sink is immediately in danger. She's running, kind of started in medias res and, and she gets assaulted by a bunch of sunny veilers who accuse her of stealing money from the camp, right? 10 bucks or something. And they string her up at the witch's tree, so we know they're serious, right? Much is done with the camera to help us know that this is the tree, even though they explain it to us as well. Well, I didn't want you and, to miss. Yeah, they didn't want you to miss these crucial plot moments. Um, and then they attempt to burn her uh, with a lighter, which they do get broken up. But again, like the the level of threat here is is ramped up right away and. I think you are kind of on the right track. They're not doing a great job of showing us the intensity of this rivalry. In the first film, it feels more like, you know, a high school rivalry. Like, oh, you guys suck. We're going to put cow shit in your, your locker room. Ha ha. And but wild here it's like, <laughs> but here it's like, no, we're going to kill you. Yeah. And we're going to get away with it because we're from Sunnyvale. 
And, you know, there's certainly some stuff that happens, I guess, in the first movie that makes it seem like these Sunny Valers are, you know, above reproach. But we don't get any examples of that. Yeah, we don't see from- any of these things. We're told a lot. We're told so many times about Sunny Valers and how terrible they are and how Sweetie Side is a curse. We're just never shown anything. So, right, you know, like I'm forced almost- to believe these teenagers. I just don't. Uh, I guess we see the cop, you know, you know, framing the the character who becomes a super important character in the but, third like that's movie. everywhere. Why would that be unique to Shady <laughs> Right. That's just cops. <laughs> All right. Um yeah, so I mean I think we needed to see some of that um you know, kid on kid violence and how desperate the situation might have become. Um needle drops Needle mm. drops everywhere. Over too many. And over, too many. All the time. Forever and ever. I it's, hated it. I mean, the music in this one, I think, again, the, the 1994 choices. Uh, the music in this obvious. one. The music in this one felt cliche to me. Because yeah, I, these are these are songs that have been used in this context before. Um, at the very least. 1994 felt like it was just trying to pander to my age, but mm-hmm. this is this is pandering to an entire like horror genre aficionado. Like these are these are all things that we sort of expected to hear. Like nothing was surprising, nothing was interesting. I just think if you're going to use that kind of music, if you're going to use it so often in a film, it should be at least a little surprising sometimes. And this was not. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about that with 94, you know, the the James Gunn style of music insertion for his films, how he's careful about them and and sort of choosy about them. And and sometimes they're the obvious choices. Sometimes they aren't. Most of the times they aren't. But this film, nothing was surprising. I mean, the music itself is fine. It's it's good music, obviously. But it's fine. But it's just fine. Um, I don't know. It's, it's okay. It's, it's one of those things. If you enjoy needle drops of, of crazy songs, uh, awesome. Right. Are are you going to hear cherry bomb? Yes. You're going to hear cherry bomb. Of course you are. Um, James Gunn used it better in guardians of the galaxy too, but I would just like to stop hearing that song in movies. I'd like to hear some new songs. There's so much music in the world. But how else will you know that these teenagers aren't going to follow the rules? How else will you know that they're punk as fuck? So much punk. And the Ramones hadn't recorded that much by 1978. Look at this girl's hair. She's very (laughs) punk rock. That's right. It's blonde and it's short and it's she's really, really in. To this kind of thing and she smokes um, cigarettes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I guess we can hit the major relationships in this we have uh ziggy who is obviously the main character and obviously c berman but whatever we have her older sister cindy who is in love with a boy named tommy who apparently is a bit of a square i guess and and she doesn't like that about him but he seems nice enough um, she is former friends with another girl. I don't remember her name. Uh, she's played by was it Riley Jackson. I had all these names pulled up. Ryan Simpkins. Sorry. 
and she, her name is Alice because she's going to go to Wonderland. Um, but uh, she is is a druggie. She's bad. She's a bad kid, and she ha- she does it with her boyfriend at camp and stuff. And they're uh, desperate for drugs. I guess they want they want weed, and that becomes important later. But yeah, so we we get you know the standard sort of shady side teen counselors that are kind of screw ups, but they seem well meaning enough. And then we have the Sunny Veilers, which are the good brothers. So we get to see uh, Sheriff Good and Mayor Good as younger men. Uh, Mayor Good was a raging asshole who was totally okay with uh, burning Sadie Sink's character. So we're starting to get that evil bent to the Good family, although it seems like young Nick Good, at least, is you know sort of okay. Uh, eventually, him and Sadie Sink have like some moments together. Um, and we find out the origins of the journal that C. Berman is looking at at the beginning, that it was started by the nurse at the camp. And there's all sorts of, they, they're, they're starting to sort of try and tie together some of the visuals that we've seen in the first film that didn't make much sense. So the red moss that Sam falls into when she has the car crash, we see that moss again, except this time it's in the outhouse, which is fun. And they're trying to clean it. And you know, sanitize the outhouse, which is <laughs> cute. Um, but that becomes later. We get like a Goonies moment with the outhouse later. You know, this is our time, that kind of thing. Uh, Not as good, though. It's kind of interesting. No, no. Distinct lack of Corey no, Feldman. My, well, no film has enough Feldman. You know, if they would have allowed some adults in the movie, he would have showed up. Could have just called Corey Definitely. Feldman. He'd be here. Corey Feldman does not have a lot going. On. <laughs> definitely show up. Uh, but so we're introduced to the nurse and she seems a bit off again. She's our only sort of adult character throughout most of this film. And there's something wrong with her. We find out that she was the mother of Ruby Lane, the previous uh, shady side murderer, right? The last one which happened. I guess we're supposed to believe that was like the early 1960s that that happened or something along those lines. But she seems nice enough. She's certainly nice to Ziggy as she uh, heals up her burn wound, but she starts sort of talking cryptically and and sort of freaking out a little bit. Uh, And basically she gets removed from the film immediately because she tries to kill Cindy Berman's boyfriend, Tommy. And, And she says she knows what's coming. Uh, which is ostensibly the the sort of starting point, the sort of impetus of the remainder of the film. That's kind of where things kick off. Uh, they have a little fight sequence. She gets subdued, and then something goes wrong with Tommy. And since we've seen the first film, we know what it is. So this is another sort of like issue with this type of layered storytelling, is that we already kind of see immediately what's wrong with Tommy. And that is that he has fallen under the shady side curse, right? We've seen it with Sam. Uh, we've seen it with uh, Ryan, the kid who kills, you know, um, Ethan Hawke's daughter at the beginning of the first one. And, and we sort of see immediately that he's turning into, you know, one of these killers. Uh, which again, I, I don't know if that was supposed to be a reveal. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm guessing not because it's super obvious what's going on, but, Who knows? Uh, We do get to spend a little bit of time with the two sisters, you know, and sort of trying to establish this relationship. Again, I'm, I was not sold on it. I think it, it's 
kind of over the top and really just designed to create a conflict between these two characters who, if they did work together, would probably be able to both survive this situation. But since they don't, um, you know, they're kind of uh, you know, in, in a bad space. But their main beef is just that the sister seems desperate to forget that she's a shady sider, whereas Ziggy has kind of decided to, I guess, lean into it. Is that, I guess that's the way we could say but it. But yet she says in the movie that all she wants is to get out. So why would, I don't understand why she resents her sister for wanting the same thing and just going about it a different way. Yeah, I mean, their their goal is the same. Neither of them want to stay at Shadyside for any reason, but the sister has decided that the best way is to conform and get her opportunity, whereas the daughter uh, or the younger sister, Ziggy, is like, well, I want to get out too, but I'm going to get out and be me. Right? I'm gonna be I mean, and I guess the conflict would be a little bit clearer if maybe Ziggy didn't want to leave Shadyside for some reason. Sure. But it feels like they have the same goals, and the only thing that she hates about her sister is you're just you're such a poser. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It just it felt like such a weak conflict for them to hate each other yeah. so much. You poser, I'm gonna kick your ass. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird kind of of thing to be upset about, given that they both kind of want the same things. Um, so so once the the killer stuff starts the film i think adopts a pretty a pretty good pace um i, I think it opens strong with c berman's house and it's sort of that opening situation slows down to establish its characters a little bit you know my only issue with the horror in this is that it's it's very classically staged and that's not a bad thing but, you know, it's a lot of shadows moving in hallways, you know, things seen in mirrors. It's it's all very it's all very traditional. And if you like horror movies, you're going to see a lot of things that you've seen before and probably enjoyed. And. I don't know, a lot of it worked, a lot of it seemed kind of. Kind of tired. Right, like. I don't know. What was your interpretation of once the horror really began? Like, what did you think of, you know, it's staging, it's, it's production. I mean, where did you fall? Kind of tired. Like it just, it's very predictable. I mean, even the, the levels of, of gore, even the, the violence of the movie and nothing, nothing felt as surprising. I mean, there was no, there was no, uh, bread slicer death in this one. No, no, this is, this is an axe murder. Like they're not, they're not pushing that, that boundary at all. I mean, there is some stuff later when we realize that once these killers become the killers, they, they sort of become unkillable, um, where they, they do some, some interesting effects, but yeah, like none of the kills themselves are especially memorable. Yeah. And I don't find the movies at all scary. I didn't expect to, though, so I'm not really holding that against. Yeah, I, I I would say the same. Like, these movies are not not scary. I mean, there were certainly moments where I was like, oh. And and I was like, okay, that, you know, that was it's good. Um, but no, this is more of a... I mean, I guess here we could, we could make another distinction between 
a, a movie that's really legitimately trying to scare your your balls off, right? Like it wants to terrify you versus a movie where it wants you to like root in the air and be like, woohoo, got him, right? Like, and Friday the 13th has always, for me, been a, my relationship with that series is the woo, got him kind of thing, yeah. right? Like, it's you're cool with Jason winning, right? Like up, well, I guess up to a point, right? Like there's, there's characters that you want to be okay. But those movies are about how did they die? What kills took place? What, you know, character got their comeuppance, right? Like that's, that's what those movies are in Friday the 13th and and, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, both kind of became the same thing. The first Nightmare on Elm Street, not so much, but the later Nightmare on Elm Street's very much in that, like, you know, you're just waiting to see how Freddy dispenses with this person. And so I I understand if you're building a film off that template, that's what your film is going to be too. But no, none of these movies are terrifying. They're gross at times. Like there's gross out moments, but at no moment was I like riveted in my seat, you know, waiting. Oh, what's going to happen next? Uh, Nothing like that. So I, I would definitely put this more in like the fist pumping but I guess, category. I guess know? that's where I I struggle the most because, you know, iconic horror movies, they were very simple in their setup, but they were original at the time they came out. So if you're going to replicate those movies and hope for a similar success, you have to look at what people want to see now given what they've already seen and i don't think this movie is showing us anything that we haven't already seen no you just want to see that again that's what you and i know what you want and that's where it also is nothing like you know later entries in in those slasher franchises because there are no memorable kills mm-hmm. you know there's nothing like i can't tell you from this specific movie i can remember from the first one the bread slicer but that's it. Yeah. And and that's you know, that's obviously obviously that Saw movie made an impression on me because I'm still talking about Twisty Bones all these years later. Oh, uh, I know we talked a little bit about I, I did see M in Night Shyamalan's old um this week. And uh if you want to see some twisty bones, <laughs> there is not a lot of like horror in that that film there really isn't but there is one sequence just one wherein twisty bones are absolutely a so are you familiar with the medical condition known as osteoporosis yes well let's just say that old and this is a bit of a spoiler for old so uh skip 30 seconds uh 45 seconds maybe if you don't want to hear it um Let's just say when a person who has early onset osteoporosis begins to age very quickly, what might happen to their bones if they would perhaps take a tumble? Because the film also establishes that once one is injured on the beach, since you are aging so quickly, you also heal very quickly. If you took a tumble, with your osteoporosis bones. And then you healed very quickly before you were able to, I don't know, put that bone back in its proper position. 
And then the pain from said thing caused you to flail around even more. What might happen to your bones? Oh, God. I don't want to see that movie now. It's a very short sequence. It's illuminated with um, uh, a, a single match. So it's, it's, it's done. They, they couldn't afford like the full suite of twisty bone technologies <laughs> to create it. But uh, yeah, they definitely, they went there and uh, it was, it was interesting uh, to say the least, but easily, easily the most like quote unquote horrific thing in that movie. But uh, yeah, pretty good. It was all right. Wow. Well, there's nothing like so, that in this movie. <laughs> no, no. I mean, no, it has the, like that the axe to, to the face when they kill the stoner it kid. It does. Um, yes. uh, but very, that, very grisly. But uh, I, I struggled to remember that. <laughs> I was like, there, were, there had to be something. There had to be some death in this Somebody movie. Somebody got murdered in this movie? Um, you know, there's... Interestingly, I liked... I know this is this is going ahead a bit, but just in terms of horror and development, I really liked the parts with Cindy and what was her name, Alice? Uh, yes, because they do get teamed up towards the end of the movie. I loved those um, parts. I loved yes. I loved Team Alice and Cindy. Um, I loved all of the character development that was done when they're stuck in the caves. I loved, you know, we got some some grisly injury with. Alice's uh, mm-hmm. bones breaking. Um, speaking of bones. Yeah. Speaking of bones. Yeah. You know, and then they have the the kind of cool journey to finding themselves under the outhouse with all of the red moss. But like that was so short. It was so short. And I, I found myself thinking, like, wow, this is taken just out of a much better movie or something. I don't know, but it, it felt it felt jarring that the movie was suddenly good for yeah, I like, I mean, obviously this, these are all ensemble pieces and I think it's a pretty, I think it's pretty universal to say that they struggle with establishing all the characters of the ensemble well. Um, Cause you know, obviously here we have an entirely new set of characters that we need to learn about in ostensibly less time than we had in 1994 to learn about those characters. And they still didn't do a great job of helping us understand those characters either. Um, you know, all of them, each one had a quirk, right? Each one had their thing, but beyond that, we don't get a ton except for Dina and Josh or, and Sam, the, the sort of central trio, which continues through into the last film. But in this one, I think that the sister's journey, right? Her attempt to go from one, one thing to another thing, and then t- kind of realizing that that was a mistake and then going back again with Alice and sort of acknowledging, Hey, I, 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 I fucked up. Right. And, and you're actually you were a really good friend and I should have respected that. And then them reconnecting. That was like one of the more <laughs> it's amazing what you can do with a film when you have emotional beats. With characters that you ostensibly should care about. And and that felt really honest and natural. And. For a moment, you know, even though it was obvious that Sadie Sink was going to be <laughs> C. Berman for a moment, I said, well, I, I guess I could believe that Cindy Berman would be C Berman because this is more character development than we've gotten on pretty much anybody else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I liked those too. I mean, and it's amazing for the, given that they're aping these, these classic films so thoroughly, 
you think they would have maybe looked at the the way that a movie like Goonies builds the character ensemble, right? Because that's why Goonies is remembered. Goonies is not a great movie. No. Like I'm, I'm sorry, like it's not. Um, but the reason you love it is because you love those kids. Yeah, you love those characters. Although Richard Donner right? didn't. Wow. No, no, <laughs> Richard Donner did not. Love I, those I think kids. maybe he hated kids when he was done making the Goonies. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think Dick Donner made many more movies with kids after the Goonies. Rest in but, peace, sir. <laughs> that's right. Thank you, sir, for your wonderful contributions to the history of film, as you will be remembered forever. You and your wife both. Oh, Laura Schuler Donner is, is with us, but um, yeah, like you, you loved those characters and each of them were well established beyond their sort of singular quirk. Oh, Chunk likes to eat. Well, he also has these other layers. Uh, Mouth likes to talk. Well, he also has these other layers, right? Like, I guess the, the weakest one is unfortunately probably Data, um, but he gets so many like hero moments. It kind of compensates out, I guess. He was um, the only good kid of the bunch. <laughs> Yes, it's true. Yeah, he was the only one who was just genuinely. <laughs> he was like a well-adjusted, nice boy who had no business hanging out with these misfits. <laughs> he meets his parents at the end and his parents are like, we love you. And he's like, I love you too. Instead of like, <laughs> like here's a oh. pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, I, I don't know. But this movie certainly lacks that quality. But in those moments of camaraderie between Cindy and Alice, you get that little burst of life where it's like, hey. There's something here, right? Well, you just let them um, act instead of run. Right. And that, I mean, again, this is, this is the problem with horror. This is why most horror is bad is because you either have to take the time to do this or your writing has to be so tightly integrated with your action that it's happening at the same time. And quite frankly, most movies are not capable of doing that. They just we aren't. can't all be like, Jordan Peele. I guess not. I mean, <laughs> I, it, it can obviously be done, but those scripts, for whatever reason, are not generally the scripts that, that are getting to production level. I mean, you know, I'll read stuff on the blacklist or whatever and be like, oh, this would be really good. Like, this would be excellent. I mean, and It is a great example of that, too. The script that they built it off of. Now, I mean, Kerry Fukunaga did not get like final script credit for it, but they basically shot his script for the first one or chapter one, whatever. And that script rules. Like it is incredible. I've watched the first uh, it. it film many times. I've I've put that on just in the background while I'm working. But the mm -hmm. second one, you know, I've only ever watched it the one time. Yep, I fell asleep <laughs> and uh, had no desire to revisit it. I was like, no, I'm good. I, my wife and I actually watched it together, and she is not a horror fan, like not at all. Every once in a while, she'll go watch something like that with me. And, and she actually sat down and we watched the first one. She's like, okay, I think I can do the second one. And she told me what happened. And I was like, I'm good. I don't need to see that. Because yeah. <laughs> once uh, it was, uh, oh, it's, they did the spider thing, of course. Mm -hmm. And, and, but it's a, it dies differently, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm fine. I, I don't need to see that. And and that's because that second script was not based on that Kerry Fukunaga script. And that second script was not good. And it didn't know how to handle those characters in that ensemble. And so they spend 90% of that movie split up by themselves doing their own thing. And it's like, you understand that the strength of the first film was the camaraderie, right? Like, you get that? Yeah. Like, are you familiar with storytelling and how that works? Um, but that was the problem is they had decided 
that they had already established all those characters in the first movie, so they didn't need to do any more work, yeah. even though they were 30 years older. Than well, nothing before. much happened. <laughs> no. You know, they just had lives, jobs, families, well, and, terrible things happened. And I understand the, the, the hesitance on, on the part of a writer to do that because, you know, the, the characters that those children were, and I guess, you know, in this regard, the teenagers that are in this movie, you're building off of putting people in touch with memories of their own youth. And if you characterize them too much as adults, people will lose that kind of wistfulness about their past, I think. Sure. Yeah, you can't nostalgize somebody that looks a lot like you. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, you're just a sullen loser in your 30s. Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to find out that those kids turned into losers like the rest of us. <laughs> right. Even though they were called the losers. We want to believe that you got better. But no, I mean, it is characterized by the worst adults, and that's... Yes. I mean, again, it's it's a hallmark of the genre at this point. Yeah. And it's, it's fine. And but in this movie, the scenarios and situations, like, you can kind of believe a bunch of kids running around the 1980s would be able to avoid parents, right? But, like, this movie takes place very significantly in locations where there are just lots of adults, schools, and summer camps, and police stations and hospitals, yeah. and yet there are still never any adults around. And if there are, they're immediately murdered and no one else comes to check on them. Um, it's just, it's, it's weird choices. It's different choices. Um, so, I mean, Fear Street continues on. Uh, Tommy is infected. He starts feeling strange. So we kind of get to see the slow version of the conversion to the killer, even though the we were shown the conversion of the killer for Sam and it was immediate. Um, she was laying on the bed and they were snogging and then she got up and stabbed Dina immediately after, but it takes Tommy like a day, I guess to kind of, you know, get down with the sickness. Yeah. Uh, which I, again, I thought was a bit odd. I don't know if that means that Tommy's like, morally incorruptible i think it's just following zombie movie rules where depending on the scene they'll just change how long it takes to be infected sometimes it's really fast this person has more more susceptible blood (laughs) i i think the what really happens is that for some reason instead of just having it all happen at night they needed tommy to not turn into a killer until it got dark so that they could have everybody running through in the dark i think that's really what it came down to but it's just eh, silly and and another sort of like weird thing that nobody seemed to really consider or think about as they were putting this together um but once tommy begins to truly turn he puts on the flannel shirt and since we've already seen the killer from the first one again you kind of know where this is headed um and I, I don't hate that. I mean, it's fine. I, I, I'm glad they're not pandering to us and being like, oh, you know, we're going to hide the truth from you until the last possible moment. But it, at the same time, it just removes all the it just removes all the tension. You just know exactly what's coming. It's so clearly telegraphed and that's fine. But in a movie that I think is already struggling to maintain like forward momentum, especially at this at the this part of the film when they're kind of still exploring and figuring things out, man, it just makes it for kind of being kind of dull. Um, We do get a lot of consultation of the nurse's journal, 
And we find out that she's basically been studying this since her daughter was turned. She believed that her daughter was innocent and that she was turned by something and has ever since then been, you know, trying to figure it out. And so here, my question was, then why did you eliminate the nurse from this film? Because <sighs> in movies, and I mean, call me crazy, it's more interesting to have a character relay information to you via dialogue, as opposed to have characters point to the page of a book and then deliver dialogue. I don't know if you feel similarly. Well, but I would like to point out that um, the first movie had a character that just slammed a series of, of newspaper clippings and photographs down on a table in rapid succession <laughs> in order to, to reveal plot details to us. So I wasn't yeah. surprised that the movie took that tactic. Um, yeah. But I don't really understand why she had to attack Tommy. Like, did we even um, need that scene for the character to be eliminated? I don't think we did. No, I mean, I guess what gets revealed later is that she knew where, like, the witch cave was with all the names on the wall. And that she had found that. I think this is more in the third movie that they talk about this, but I don't remember. Maybe there's a scene in this one. It, it doesn't matter. Um, but in essence, she, like, had found the wall and she saw Tommy's name on it, which is how she she knew that he was the next one to be cursed. And that's why she tried to kill him before he could turn. But I feel like that whole thing could just be lifted right out of the movie and forgotten, and it would make well, no difference whatsoever. <laughs> they spend so much time explaining the mechanics of that in the third movie. I don't think they have to do it here. Yeah. Um, and they even showed us that in the first film. They sh they take us down to that witch cave with a ridiculous pointy hat, which, and we see Samantha's name get carved into the rock, right? Like it appears. And so it's like, well, we we know this information visually um and and we know that tommy is going to turn so really the the nurse is the exposition piece right she's the microfiche of this film or at least her journal is but yet most of that information is going to be covered later so th this is another part of the storytelling that i feel is designed around the netflix delivery mechanism or potentially the theatrical mechanism where you know you you do have people who just go to the theater every weekend and they just pick a, pick a film and watch it, right? They're not necessarily going with purpose and intent. I think that number has definitely lowered in the last couple of years, given the difficulty of going to a theater. But, you know, you kind of have to have all of these story pieces there in case this is the only one of these that they see, I guess. Um, and that kind of feels like what this is like. They're, they're just hitting these same beats. There's the wall, there's the witch, there's the names, there's the killers. And they just kind of have to cover it all because every movie covers it in one form or another. Again, I think you, you hit on it earlier when it's this move, this story that they're telling is not complicated. No. Right. Cause I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you, dear listeners. Uh, there's a person not the witch, a person, like a living person that is executing this curse, right? Which they showed us in the first film. Like we saw it. So we know this to be the case. The question then, of course, becomes who is it? Right? And so that's kind of dangled for a while. <laughs> dangled. Um, but I mean, that's a generous word dangled. to use. 
<laughs> I don't feel like I was really having anything dangled in front of me. Right. Um, let's just say the names in this movie are really important, right? Fear, good, you know, etc. Um, Goody, bad maybe witch. if you think about it, <laughs> maybe if you think about it a little bit, it'll become obvious kind of what's going on. Uh, but so the, the kids go on this fact finding mission, uh, led by Alice, strangely enough to use the nurse's journal to find, you know, the secret, which cave, which again, they all apparently know exists, right? They all like, Oh yeah, man, which, which has a cave. Totally. And now they're, they're going to go find it. Never thought to check it before. No, no, don't be ridiculous. Um, (laughs) <laughs> they didn't they knew about it but they didn't believe it existed until they found the book from the crazy woman who tried to murder someone's boyfriend and then they were like well we got to go check this it's shit out it's very scooby doo <laughs> it's it, it is man we talked about scooby doo with the first one like it it's got that sort of zany don't really have all the pieces to put this together I kind of I feel like it misremembers vintage horror that they weren't this zany. Yeah. They weren't this crazy. No. They were really straightforward. I mean, like, I guess by the time you got to Friday the 13th, th- three, definitely four. Like, you've got a lot of stuff where it's like, to kill Jason, you must put his body in a cave and throw salt on it five times. Like it got to that point where it was like, okay, all right. Gotcha. I don't know. I guess, I guess I just um, don't know if we should be emulating those movies. <laughs> right. That's not the ones that people look at and go like, dude, that was the good one. That's like what they look at and go like, Oh, that was silly as shit, but it was okay. Um, yeah, just, just very odd, uh, to have that kind of like weird, you know, like you said, Rube Goldberg kind of machinations running in the background where it's like, A, how do you know this? B, how are you going to execute this? Like when you're being chased by an axe murderer, how in the world are you going to set up all this stuff? You know, um, but so that while they're in the, the witch's cave, they see Tommy's name on the wall, which again, supposedly the nurse had also figured out. And and of course, the moment they see his name on the wall is when he finally goes full homicidal and, and murders the, the uh, Alice's boyfriend. And and again, gore effects in this are high quality, really well done. They spent some money, they spent some time, and uh, that dude dude gets his head just cut in half, just straight in half. Right? Do you ever want to see a human head cut in half in a surprisingly realistic way? Well, here you go. It's right here in this film. Screenshot it. Put it as your desktop. You'll, you'll never, you know, I don't know if you'll find a better example of it in recent memory. I may um, not do that if that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a screenshot from old that I'm going to send you later. Just, uh, just <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to title the name of the, the JPEG. It will be twisty bones uh, and, and it'll be just for you. It's going to ruin uh, my day. <laughs> Uh, so Tommy goes bad. Uh, Alice and Cindy are able to get away, but now we move back to the camp and we see that it's very dark, just very dark. Um, again, apparently this camp has no external lighting whatsoever. And uh, they're in the midst of a color war, uh, which I thought was a tad on the nose, but you know, this is how you know your sides. And, and we, 
this feels almost pulled instead of from, you know, the, the camps that we would see in something like Friday the 13th. This almost feels pulled from, I don't know, like the other sort of like kitty summer camp dramas that have, that have existed forever. A little there, like Disney the, channel, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. You know, just like the three sides and, you know, it's like Harry Potter. Who's going to win the house cup, but uh, they're in a, a color war with each other. So the blue kids are shady siders. The red kids are you know, sunny veilers or whatever. And they're all catching each other. It's like a big game of hide and seek, I guess, for a part of it. But you know, it's weird. We and didn't it, get any setup for it in the movie other than just like a couple of really, really quick scenes. So yeah. there's not yeah. a lot of build up to these moments. And I thought that could have been a cool a cool moment to have this, you know, be a big event that the movie's building toward and then have the middle section with all of the violence and Tommy stalking everybody be in the middle of this big game. And I think right. that's so what that's they wanted to do. Don't pay attention or something. Yeah. But it just didn't it didn't feel like it sold it. It just didn't do it. Yeah, I, again, a lot of these pieces just feel like they're they're sort of coexisting. They're not really integrated with each other. So you have the exploration of the cave, you have the camp, you know, the campers in the color war, and then you've kind of got Sadie and Nick running around sort of being scamps, right? Oh, we're going to, we're going to put a girl in the bathroom and lure her there with the promise of sexy times. And then we're going to dump cockroaches on her head where we got them from. Who knows? Why Where do you so get big? a bucket of cockroaches? Probably inaccurate. Yeah, like it's just, it's ridiculous. It, but it's it's like, again, what are they riffing on? Carrie, a little bit. You know, they're trying to like, again, it's just, it's it's a lot of stuff from all these different places that they're like going to go and like, oh, that's kind of neat. Yeah, that's cool. Do that. Um, you know, but it, again, it's all kind of slightly off and slightly misused and misappropriated because like, you know, when Carrie gets the the pig blood dumped on her it's because she's the victim right like they're and and it's kicking off some you know horrific series of events and this one they dump it on her head and she's like the shitty girl that tried to burn ziggy so it's funny you know it's like well okay <laughs> is that what you were going for uh it's kind of like that scene in it chapter two where the guy's down in the basement of the pharmacy and then like the leper shows up and just like spews Ugh. black bile all over his face and it's singing uh just call me angel. Why? It's like, are you trying to be Why? funny? Are you wanting to, is this a humorous moment or is this, am I so supposed to be terrified? Weird. Did you, did you, did you shoot it and then realize it wasn't scary? So you decided to make it funny with a needle drop? I I think that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. I think that was, um, you know, so there's definitely some, some moments like that in here, but um, this phase of the film, and we're not quite really to the third act yet, but this phase of the film is where the, the gore ramps up because Tommy as the murderer, uh, is, is not just going to kill the other adult counselors. He goes after the children. Um, and we already sort of mentioned this earlier, so I don't necessarily want to harp on it. I don't, but some of these kills just not even gratuitous. I don't, I wouldn't even use the word gratuitous. They just felt unnecessary and kind of dis and like more disturbing than is needed. Um, cause like there are several moments where it's, it's little kids yeah. who get killed. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, 
I'm not going to say that there are things that are taboo in horror movies. We have seen many, many terrible things, right? Uh, well, and, and- the difference is if you're going to do that, if you're going to kill children who are like visibly children, then it has to be done with some weight to it in, in the film. Um, if it's just they're dying, <laughs> they're being killed, it's off-putting. It's just always going to be off-putting. It's one of the reasons that movie teenagers are adults, and they always look like adults. Because actual teenagers look like kids, and you don't want to see them mm-hmm. get murdered. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, it's terrifying, and it's not that the film is primal or is disgusting about seeing them murdered. Most of it is off-screen. But it is very but casual. We see the it. aftermath, and it, it is... And it's the other part of it that I thought was interesting is that Tommy, and I could be wrong here. It's been a while since I watched it. The only kids that he kills are shady siders. Yes. And I know that's part of the curse is that the shady siders are the ones who die, but it makes the film feel tremendously unbalanced because, you know, there's no sort of comeuppance for, for anyone else. And that, I don't know. It, it, it just, most of that just rubbed me wrong. And maybe it was the way they were inserted into the film because they just kind of get dropped in, right? It's yeah, like, we don't like, see anyone. We don't see anyone else at this camp except for the people who are like starring in the movie. Everyone else is like background extras until these little kids start dying. Right. Like, it's not like we've seen a bunch of interactions between these camp counselors and these little kids. Uh, there's that scene of Tommy, but that scene. There is a scene of Tommy interacting with the kids and the kids are like, hey, what's up, Counselor Tommy or whatever. And he's trying to show him how but to that like, doesn't uh, help. swing a baseball bat or something. <laughs> That's not helping. Um, it's making it worse. But, it, but that scene is not about the kids. It's about Tommy, right? Because everything like free, you know, like freezes and shows that he's like under the weather or something. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's very it's very strange. Um, characters are are who you know we might have seen earlier for a brief conversation at like the cafeteria table show up with the obvious like you're going to die now like you're here to die that's why you're here that's why we gave you a line you know 40 minutes ago in the movie is so you could show up here and get your head fucking cut off um you know like that kind of stuff it, it becomes really obvious in the back half of this and again every horror movie in the world that's how it happens it's fine but I don't know. I, I hate, and I've said this many times, I hate judging movies for what they could have been rather than what they are. But this is one of those movies where it's like, okay, you are, you set out with the intent of, I'll, I'll go ahead and use the word updating classic slasher concepts, right? From Scream to Friday the 13th crucible i guess i don't know but like this this story seemed intent on you know in addition to telling like this fear story this fear street story but also sort of bringing back classic slasher movie tropes but what i hoped was that it would also update them enliven them bring them into something more something more modern in a, in a context that could be really satisfying and engaging. And that's not really happening here. It's just a lot of, you know, as I said earlier, regurgitation. It's just, you've seen these things before, you know them, you like them here. They are again with 
a marginal twist for our story. And I don't know. It, it's it's effective enough. Like I certain I, I didn't hate watching these as I was watching them, but again, there there's not much here in terms of long lasting appeal, which is a problem. You know. Um. So I guess in terms of plots, basically, you know, Ziggy and her sister reconnect at the outhouse. They are, you know, traveling through the caves. They find the red moss that, uh, you know, Cindy Berman realizes it's the moss under the outhouse. And Ziggy happens to be in the outhouse dealing with the aftermath of dumping cockroaches on a girl's head. Um, and and then they, they drop a bucket down and pull them up. And there's some, yeah, and there's some nice, you know, metaphorical stuff going on with Cindy getting covered in shit when she's in her, her perfect little sunny veil lookalike outfit, you know, that nice things the movie's trying to do, but overall, yeah, it's a lot like the Goonies. And, you know, Tommy, of course, shows up and chops off the head of that kid that we met. Like 10 seconds ago. (laughs) (laughs) Who was that? Uh, That was a guy. You've seen him in other things. Uh, Don't worry. He's dead now. I guess we did. I I guess we can take a brief moment. Uh, Obviously, the Fear Street series and and horror of many types, not really this type necessarily, but horror in general owes a lot to Stephen King Uh and this film. Uh, He, I guess the connection point between Nick Good and uh, Ziggy Berman is a shared love of Stephen King, um, which in 1978 is understandable. That was sort of like King's first big exposure with you know, the shining and Carrie and everything like that. Um, he wasn't quite the cultural phenomenon. Mm, at that point, yeah. So I, I struggled a bit that, you know, some, some 15 year olds in 1978 would be like hyper King fans, given that he only had like maybe five books out at that point. Um, probably a few more than that. But in any case, like I, I, I wanted to get your read on using Stephen King, name dropping King, as a point of like allowing these two kids to connect because they're both like horror fans. Well, it seemed like a very, very meta choice. I, but. I don't like it when you just throw around stuff like that. I don't know. It worked in Stranger Things too to hit on Stephen King a lot because it's the 1980s and in the 1980s you couldn't get bigger than Stephen King. But in 1978, I really don't think that that works. I think, I think Stephen King's books were very inspired by the era that this movie is set in. And so it was trying to connect those two things. Um, and that doesn't really work. Like that's that's anachronistic. But you know the movies are are anachronistic anyway. They just are. Um, yeah, by their nature, they're they're sort of shooting out of the time frame that they they exist in. Um, I think it would have been self referential. It would have been a little bit better if maybe they were both Twilight Zone fans. That would have made more sense. Twilight Zone, or I mean, they do this this thing where they establish at least in the 94 one that, you know, Robert Lawrence is a popular author, right? You know, like why couldn't you just either use him or like have 
another, you know, create another author. But then we need a reference. That they can bond over. Bro. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it feels like it came down to is like we have to reference. We got to name drop somebody. This is our something shot. That people will know. And yeah. Okay, so, all right. So I'm being bad. I went to Wikipedia and I looked at King's, you know, his bibliography. The only thing that he had published in 1978 was Carrie. Yeah. And that was two years prior. Yeah. The Shining didn't come out till 1980. I thought it was 79, but, you know, which I was going to just give him that one. I was going to be like, well, let him have The Shining. But yeah, like he'd only published one book in 1978. So it's like, okay, so you're telling me these two kids are going to bond over this one. Well, I mean, the first movie was showing us an AOL clear type chat window in 1994. So, I mean, I just don't think they're working very hard. They're not. They don't care. And it's fine. I mean, it's it's such a nitpicky thing, but you know, when you when you name drop Stephen King in a in a horror film, like that's meaningful, right? Like that's a meaningful thing to do, and to feel it used so callously because well, then they reference lot, it. I mean, a lot of references in this movie are just sort of tossed around without really considering. You know what? Why? Why Stephen King? Why is he important to these characters? What is it about Stephen King that's that's important here? Why is he important right. to this film or to to horror? Like, can you tell me in the movie what you're trying to do, or are you just, or is it the the dialogue equivalent of a name drop, like a needle drop? Yeah. Like, is that the Shrek that coming out of the outhouse and and <laughs> all star plays? <laughs> I mean, that's really what it feels like. Yeah, and and I, that's kind of where I was at too. Like, it just didn't feel. I, I think you know, script needle drop is probably the best way to to talk about it. I, I mean, I'm glad they tried to do something to unite those two characters more than just have them like you know, just kiss each other just to just to kiss each other. I guess. I mean, they could have, but. Um, yeah, it just didn't seem it didn't seem like a great idea. Um so I did want to say I'm always as I've watched these films and as I'm kind of going through them again as we you know talk about them, I'm super surprised at how long they are. And they feel long, right? And I think that's antithetical to what horror should be. Um, you know. Horror should feel swift, right? like engaging. And there's just moments in these movies where I feel like everything slows down. And I, I think this one is the best of the three in terms of its overall pacing and the overall sort of arrangement design of, of the scenes. Like, I feel like it's, it's pretty swift, but I don't know, man, all of these movies struggle with, the sort of overall movement of the story. Like it just doesn't work most of the time. Uh, You know, this one, I think really up until Tommy reanimates in the kitchen, like from like the time they hit the outhouse until that reanimation point, it's just kind of a slog. Um, You know, there's some, some kills and stuff in it to keep you interested, I guess. But if you're not invested in the kills, which most of the time I wasn't, it's there's not a lot happening for me in these moments. Get a little spark of life again when Alice and Cindy Berman kind of reconnect after that moment. And they're kind of like, 
and I guess Cindy makes her big apology and she's like, you know, I'm sorry, you're a good friend. I care about you. And, um, and, and then of course, Alice is immediately there. I hated that. I hated that so much. Didn't that suck? That was the worst. I mean, that was probably the worst. If they had given it a minute, two minutes, hell, I really would have liked five more minutes with Alice, but just to do it like that, that was so shitty. Like just, mm. That's, yeah, I, mean, I mean, I feel like, I feel the same way about stuff like that, that I do, it was all a dream. It's like, how dare sure. you, how dare yeah. you take that little moment of victory where she's like, no, we're going to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to finish this and then have her get murdered. That's just, that's bad writing. It's, I mean, it, I guess determining on, on what it's determined by what you wanted out of the scene. If you wanted the characters to have a moment where they felt successful and then have it robbed from them, then I guess, I mean, that's one way to do it. And like, who but, wants that? I mean, show right, me the moviegoer who wants to see that all the time, constantly. I just don't, I don't think that that's a real thing. You know, obviously somebody will come out of the shadows and say, I want to see that. Um, which, you know, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. Just tell me know what your life is like, that you enjoy things like that. I guess it inspires. Um, that is the thing that inspires Cindy Berman to finally like act, act, right? To like do something truly violent. Um, but did you get the feeling that it was supposed to be kind of funny? I, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the violence in this is so over the top that I struggle with taking it too seriously. There was just something like, about just so the, the beat of when she finishes her speech and then that little pause and then whack and she's dead. Yeah. That it was like, I think you were trying to make that a joke and fuck you movie. That sucks. Like what a bad joke. <laughs> like that's just not funny. Right. And you know, they, they deal with Tommy. They realize that the, the black heart, which we didn't even talk about, like this movie also has to give us like a physical representation of the evil in the town, uh, which is a pulsating shit covered heart in, it in the cave. <laughs> Just like my uh, heart. <laughs> it's right. It's all of our hearts. It's the American heart. Um, but like, cause I, I guess we haven't even talked about it cause it's at this point, it's so ridiculous. They find the witch's hand. Is that what? It, yeah, it's like her hand. Yeah. And because that's the thing, her hand got cut off and that's why she cursed the town. So the in this one, the mechanic is you take the hand and you put it back with her body and uh, the curse will end. Right. Everything will stop. And so that's the 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 carrot on the stick that motivates these characters to do dumb things in the back half of this movie. There's going to be another one that motivates them to do dumb things in the next movie, just like there was one in the first movie that motivated them to do stupid things that didn't work either. <clears throat> but it all leads to this moment where we're supposed to see. So we've had Cindy Berman reconcile with Alice and then Alice is immediately killed. And now we're building to a scene where the Berman sisters are going to reconcile or have a moment of reconciliation. <clears throat> but much like with Alice, it just leads to, in this case, Cindy dying. 
Um, cause they're being swarmed by all of the various killers from the past. Cause the black evil heart has spawned them all, which apparently is a thing that they do, which also led to another question. And, and, uh, also this one. So if, if this witch, whoever it is, just needs this curse to, to like kill shady ciders to maintain souls. I don't know. Um, to keep like the evil going <laughs> to and keep the evil alive <laughs> to keep the evil alive and to keep the evil and can just spawn the killers just bring them to life and then they can just go kill whatever why do you need a, i mean just have a killer respawn and then just go kill more shady ciders why do you need the new ones other than just to keep keep the streak going, I guess. That is cool. Because uh, we get a new it's one. Awesome. This one will um, die in a really unique way, and there'll be a unique killer. That's right, killer. and there'll be a new killer. And then we can send uh, them all after people all at once. That's right, man. It's so cool. Uh, but this one, we get a glance at their uh, Michael Myers knockoff, their kid Michael Myers knockoff. Uh, Ruby Lane makes a return from the first film. Uh, and then Tommy, they they all converge and murder the Berman sisters. Um, very violently, like the the older sister, the one we're supposed to believe is the you know, the person we've been following. Um, she just gets axed in the chest a bunch, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know I mentioned in the first movie that you know somebody was getting stabbed, and I was like, oh, it's not like you know Zodiac or something. Um, this one was closer. Yeah. Just excessive. <laughs> yeah. Just, it was like, oh, okay. So, I mean, she's obviously dead. Like she's not moving. She's covered in blood and they're just going to keep chopping away at her dead body. Just sinking that ax right back into that same hole again. Okay. All right. I'm with you. Um, and so they, they both get savaged pretty terribly. And then of course we find out that it was Ziggy who survived. She is Seber, and I forget, is it Christine or something? It's, I think it's Christine, which is obviously another Seber. Yeah. Um, but, like, she ends up surviving. And, um, so we've talked about the problematic needle drops in these movies, and I don't want to harp on them any more than we already have, but, they picked a particular song to play over her, her resurrection scene where Nick good is is saving Sadie's life. And, um, how did you feel about it? Um, cause it was David Bowie. I, I, um, I know her cat was called Major Tom. Uh, yes. So I guess yes. she likes David Bowie, I guess. <clears throat> Is that why they picked it? Because otherwise I don't really get it. I don't understand why you, why that song. Um, Is there a reason? The, the only thought I had after seeing the third film. Because the... This needle drops make needle drop makes no sense in the context of this film. 
which has been a consistent issue. <laughs> but in in the context of the third film, it is Nick that saves her. And he is tied up in all of this. That perhaps it could be a reference to, to him. I don't know. I just don't feel like the movie is that smart. <laughs> it hasn't I, been yeah, that smart if, about anything up until this point. If if that's the case, then it's a fairly smart needle drop. If it's just this is a bitch and David Bowie song, then it's a bad choice. <laughs> because the the other thing that I thought they might have picked it for is because obviously, very famously, Nirvana did a cover of The Man Who Sold the World as part of their Unplugged album for MTV. Um, and it's brilliant. Uh, as that entire album is brilliant. And and it ties directly to, you know, previous Nirvana needle drops that we had in 1994, if you weren't paying attention, I guess. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, if you weren't paying attention and you just thought that maybe it was the Nirvana version because you don't can't recognize the difference between David Bowie and Kurt Cobain's voices or something. I, I guess it would have worked a little bit better if they'd used the Nirvana one in the first movie. Perhaps, or just use the Nirvana one here to to marry the two time periods. Ooh, or transitioned that, the two songs. That would be neat. That would have been cool. Honestly, the, that's what I expected. Like I expected to be like, oh, okay, we're gonna flash back to 1994. Oh, that's Great. such a good idea that we had. They should have let us pay this movie. I totally was expecting it that, you know, they would do because there are several like dropout moments in the Bowie version where it gets a little quiet. And I was like, oh, they could just kill it, you know, and then, bam, we're in the Nirvana version. And and, you know, we, we've got Kurt Cobain because we're back in 1994 and they didn't do it. And I was like, what the F? That is such an obvious choice. Like if I, I mean, I'm not a music editor for any anything, but like, what the hell? Why would you not do that? Because the songs are basic. I mean, they're basically note for note similar like you know the david bowie version gets a little bit more produced at the end but you could easily blend those two anyway all right so tim harping on dumb shit that bothered him in a movie well it was (laughs) just it was just dumb it was just dumb and like most of the songs they just don't mean anything and and that's why i i hesitate to say that this one possibly means anything yeah it's i don't know so we we basically have at that point once once the two sisters are are killed and this of course is meant to explain why Seaberman advised them to kill the girl as she understood that she died and was brought back and that ended her connection to the curse for whatever reason. But now we have the the new oh if we reunite the hand with the body that'll end the curse and everything will be fine. Because again, they know everything about this, but yet they know nothing about this. And but the the big reveal of the second film is that the tree, like the witch burying tree, the hanging tree that apparently everyone in town knows was the hanging tree, or they did in 1978, is now the tree in the middle of the mall where the films began. And I don't know, man. Again, these characters apparently know things that they need to know when they need to know them. And then there are other things that you would think would be super obvious that they have no idea about until the film needs them to know. Because <laughs> like, I'm like, so you're telling me that all these kids know about Camp Nightwing, 
They know what happened there, but they didn't know the Camp Nightwing was converted into the mall. And then the other issue I have with that, and man, these are so small, but God, they were so annoying as I was watching it. I was like, most summer camps, and again, I'm a Midwestern boy. I grew up in the Midwest. There's summer camps fucking everywhere here. I went to them when I was a kid. You don't put summer camps in like locations where there are people, you know, I mean, like, am I wrong in that? Like you don't, you don't plan a, you plan a summer cape around like, you know, the dude who has like a decent sized pond so you can go swimming and there's like some. Yeah. They're usually remote. That's why it made such a great horror movie setting. It's it's remote. Yeah. There's yeah. You're you're not going to get to anybody. It's like you don't build malls. In places where you would have a remote um, summer camp, I do think I mean, that I, that's believable. You know, you have a lot of farmland that gets sold off and, and developed up. I, sure. I can believe that. Yeah. Um, okay. But I'll, I'll I guess it's the it's just the likelihood of all of those things happening and mattering. Like, why does it even matter? But it just seems like they're trying to connect all these dots. Right? Yeah, like they're they're not content with it just all being in the same town. Like, no, like it's the same location, bro. <laughs> like the, the witch mall was here. Okay, <laughs> the mall is the camp. The camp was the town where everyone was. Like, it's all this is. It's the like same. Cave. The cave it is rhymes. underneath. That's right. Like poetry, it fucking rhymes exactly. Like that that piece of it. I think somebody was like, "Oh man, this is going to be awesome." And then I look at it and go like, oh, that's kind of dumb. Like, that's kind of dumb. I don't know. Like, I just, you know, there's, there's a unity of place and time. And I, I like that the film is trying to sort of establish that this is all the same. You know, this has happened before. It will happen again. Like, you know, all that stuff. But it, it was, it was a little chintzy. It or came off that way um, when I watched it. But. So the this film ends with Dina reuniting the witch's hand with the witch's body. And instead of ending the curse, she is drawn into a vision of the past, specifically Shadyside or Sunnyvale, whatever one it was at the time. I don't remember. Um, 1666. And she is in the body of Sarah Fear, the, the witch in question who cursed the town. And so that leads us inevitably to Fear Street 1666, the third film uh, in this this trilogy of of horror love letters. I would love to tell you that it gets better. (coughs) It does not. (laughs) Uh, The the third film does a few things that I like very well. Uh, It does a lot that is just okay. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that the reviews trajectory of this film is sort of strange uh typically you know in any traditional sequel situation the the sequels will always be considered lesser than the originals not always but most of the time but in this one the review scores increase with each one and i think that's because as as we've already stated this is just one movie and the problem with the first one is that we're given I mean, we're given a lot of information in Fear Street 1994, but none of it matters. Yeah. It doesn't really apply to anything. We get a little bit more in 78, so it's a bit more satisfying. And again, it's kind of the middle chapter, so it can kind of bookend itself a little bit more cleanly. 
And then the third film has currently the highest review rating on Rotten Tomatoes because it's finally where we like things happen, right? Like there are answers and characters accomplish things instead of just sitting around and talking about accomplishing things. I think. And it's, it's just, so I kind of get it, but at the same time, I was I'm surprised that, you know, that's been the basics. It's baffling to me. These movies um, are baffling you, to me. I don't understand their <laughs> success. Don't get it. Yeah. I mean, as you said, it's, it's the television, it's the televisation of film, right? Where film is, is no longer a singular thing that stands on its own and exists as a piece of media for all time. Right. It's, it's the further divorcing of, you know, films from being, you know, books or plays, right. They are these franchises, right. Franchises that extend beyond the borders of the two hour commitment that you've made to, to engage with it. And, you know, it's not that we don't have those, right. I'm not talking about the death of film here. There are plenty of directors that are still making those. Right. Um, but I, I think for the foreseeable future, I think we're going to see more of this than we are of, you know, the more traditional film. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this, especially in streaming. Right. In streaming, I think we're going to see people who continue to try and, and, and do this and attempt this form. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be good or not. Probably not. I haven't liked um, it so far. <laughs> I mean, I will admit that I enjoyed the deployment of these. I liked that they were just kind of a week apart. So you didn't have to wait that long to get the next chunk. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that the films aren't satisfying. on their own. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's why I was excited by that. Was that you know watching these movies independently of each other is not exciting or interesting, right? They're really just one movie. So if I'd had to wait six months for the next one of these, I don't know if I would have cared, right? I mean, I don't I don't think it would have mattered to me. <laughs> that, oh, that second Fear Street movie's coming out next week. Oh, oh, all right, maybe I'll check that out at some point. Mm. But if it, you know week you know if it's one week apart, it's like oh sure I'll watch that on Friday next time it comes out. And I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'm glad they exist. I will say that at this phase, we may change our tune after we discuss the third one. But I'm I'm glad again that somebody's producing decently budgeted horror that's meant to be consumed by a large number of people. Yes, because I think that that's good, right? That's a good thing, and I would like to see more of that, please. But I would also like that those films being produced to have more focus. Mm cleaner and clearer writing better actors um you know just that kind of stuff like if you're going to do this kind of big budget horror you know excursion let's let's really make it count yeah let's 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 make it stand on its own let's let it be something important and these don't quite hit that that realm and again maybe that's why warner brothers pumped and dumped maybe they looked at it and said Nah, this ain't gonna work. Never happen. We're just gonna hand them off to Netflix. Let Netflix do the the, the difficult business of marketing all this stuff, and we'll, we'll let Netflix it do its business. That's right. We'll let Netflix algorithms run their run their their strange math, and we'll let the kids get happy. Um, and like I said, there are bright spots. There certainly are. Sadie Sink was a bright spot of seventy eight. I think she did a great job. She's a good one of those Stranger Things kids. Um, but uh, yeah, 1666 
falls squarely back into Dina's shoulders. And uh, (laughs) we'll talk about that one next time. Uh, So any final thoughts on uh, Fear Street Part 2, colon, 1978? More than anything, I would like someone to make a Goosebumps movie that is actually scary. Um, yes, uh, I enjoy the Goosebumps, the, the, well, the first one, at least second one was pretty sketch, but, um, the first one was okay. You know, Jack Black doing an R.L. Stein impression was kind of fun, but they are not scary. Not at all. I mean, I, I, my six year old was scared when we watched it, I guess, but <laughs> I don't, it doesn't take much to scare six year old <laughs> most of the time. Uh, you know, the werewolf in the, the, the supermarket was enough to sort of push him over the edge but um yeah i i i agree i i think there is there is a lot to be mined here by rl stein and if this movie at the very least or the set of movies at the very least inspires more people to look at his work and and sort of you know do interesting things with it i'm i'm cool Uh, that's good um but this sort of like half ya half serious horror thing that they're trying to do here is less effective at least least for me but uh all right well i guess we'll wrap it up again we'll hold our our judgments for the overall fear street series until we talk about the third one which will be next week um and we'll kind of give our final assessments on these and uh, see where we land uh like i said we're pretty middle of the road here we'll see if 1666 does anything to help with that spoiler alert probably Uh, nope (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we'll at least give it a good talking to next time and see where we go. Uh, well, thanks for listening. Uh, we will catch up with you soon. Um, I guess, where can you be found on social media? If people are furious at you for your various opinions concerning fear street part two, I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Excellent. Uh, I can be found at T Baskin on Twitter. And of course you can get us at F peace theater together. Uh, and then if you've got any uh, longer requests or longer rants, you can get us at failurepiece at gmail.com. Uh, once again, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.